guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Karamantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we have an honored, like we're so honored to have Dr. Martha Fulford as a guest. I've been really keen on having her on the show for so long. We just honestly felt like there's no time like the present. Before doing that, I'll tell you quickly about Solving Wellness, our new online initiative to address uh, physician burnout. Those that are watching on Facebook, if you type in SW, you'll get a link to that. And this is our way of addressing burnout through physical activities, through online workouts, yoga, cooking classes, nutrition tips, sleep advice, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindful meditation, all in one setting, all in one community. First month is free. Sign up today. You won't regret it. Okay. Listen, our honored guest today is Dr. Martha Fulford, and she is a infectious disease docs, really focusing on, on the pediatric population, works at McMaster's Children's Hospital, and has been, and I say this, I don't say this lightly, Martha, you've been uh, a, a, like a role model to me in terms of how to um, do the right thing, you know, advocating for our kids, uh, not shying away from, uh, you know, difficult circumstances when it comes to articulating these things, whether on social media or mainstream media. So I tell you, she's been my go-to when it comes to some of these topics that we're going to address today. So Martha, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for asking. 100%. All right. So actually, I'm going to go a little bit off script. You started off when we went on saying, you have reasons to be optimistic in terms of COVID in general, maybe in in regards to our kids. What what did you mean by that? So, I mean, it's always, I think it's hard sometimes to take that step back and try to say, okay, what what, what were we trying to get to? What's our objective as a society? And the big fear, and I know it feels like it's been going on forever, even though it's actually been a year and a half, was to ensure that we 
got through the pandemic phase of this virus without completely overwhelming the healthcare system, it's been kind of touch and go. I think we all agree at times. Uh, and the, uh, and it's, it's this complicated situation where the virus goes from what's called a pandemic to an endemic phase. We saw that with, we see that actually with all the influenza viruses, that, that once we've got enough immunity in the population, it becomes a background virus. And we're lucky in Canada, we have a remarkable vaccination rate. Uh, and that, I mean, vaccines don't, it's not going to make COVID go away, but really the numbers are astonishing when you look at how well it is uh, protecting against severe disease. And that's really, we're in a position where we are very lucky that we're going to, yes, we're going to see numbers go up. Yes, COVID's going, I think it's here to stay, honestly. I think it's going to be one of our circulating viruses. But the amount of severe disease is going to become a lot more like a background uh, virus, like any of the, of the viruses that we deal with on, the, on a regular basis. I think we still have a few bumps in the road, but I actually think uh, in Canada, uh, we have remarkably um, strong vaccination rates and, and we're seeing that already. Just look at our numbers uh, in terms of who gets hospitalized. So I feel optimistic from that perspective. I love it. I, I mean, these are really good points. It's, you know, I think what we hear often in the media is decoupling or defanging the virus, the fact that our yeah. our our vaccines are so effective at reducing severe disease. Um, and in your mind, like I know what the answer to this is, but I'll just toss it up. In your mind, what about Delta? What about this new... Yeah, the infamous, the infamous Delta. Delta. Yeah. Does that change anything yeah. in your mind? No, it is, it is more transmissible. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. We are um, maybe lucky that we're a little bit behind... Uh, other countries in terms of the Delta wave. So we can look at what's in the United Kingdom and in the United States. In the US in particular, we can compare areas that have got high vaccination and low vaccination rates. And what is very clear is that the vaccines uh, aren't making COVID go away, and, I, and that's not a surprise, but it is very clear that even with Delta, we're not seeing more severe disease we have a huge denominator. Uh, so more people are getting it, particularly in unvaccinated regions. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with some, some language because I, I'm, I'm very much against any kind of language that might invoke blame or shame or anything. But COVID is turning into um, an infection where the severity of illness is seen in people who are unvaccinated for the most part. So, I mean, any of us could still get COVID but somebody who is vaccinated is going to have maybe no symptoms or very mild symptoms. And somebody who's unvaccinated, unfortunately, is still at risk for more severe disease, particularly the people with the comorbidities, which is age, obesity, hypertension, uncontrolled diabetes, all of the things we've been talking about for a long time. Yeah. So basically, the, the key thing is vaccines work at, 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 at yeah. the major impact in, in terms of reducing hospitalizations and yeah. death but it certainly is more transmissible. Um, and I think that's yeah. quite apparent in the literature from what we're even seeing yeah. uh, at, at, as frontline uh, medical staff. So I, I, think, yeah. I think that's an important message. Yeah, and I think we're seeing it in Ontario, of course, uh, recently re uh, changed how we're reporting. And I'm actually really pleased that so we're good. seeing this, where we're now looking at hospitalizations because the total case counts are really gonna become increasingly irrelevant 
Because if, if what we have are a lot of really mild cases in the community, that is simply not as important as whether or not we're seeing people landing in hospital and, and actually having severe outcomes. So it is this decoupling. And so, that, so our switch in reporting is actually acknowledging that really at this point, the cases are not going to be anywhere near as relevant as, as the degree to which we're seeing an impact on the hospitals and whether we can deal with that impact. I don't know about you, Martha, but when I started to see that, like when I first started to see that reporting, I almost got chills. It was like, you know, people are, 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 are decision makers are seeing what we've been preaching. You know, the yeah. fact that there yeah. is that decoupling. And as you're going to see these case counts go up, Yes, there's going to be a relative increase in hospitalization, but that ratio has changed because yeah, of it's fair. because yeah. of the vaccines. And, and that was seen unequivocally in the United Kingdom because, mm-hmm. of course, they've had their huge Delta wave. And a lot of it happened after they got rid of a, a lot of their mitigation measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, in the UK, they, they've pretty much opened up, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the, the, the wave of Delta was huge. I mean, it, it, it was very high. But if you look at the, the curve for the hospitalizations and the deaths, it was, I mean, it went up a bit, but but nowhere near uh, what we would have seen pre-vaccine. It was, it was striking, actually. It was good. Like, uh, there's a few places that, were, that, that, uh, that have shown similar patterns. But yeah, that spiking case and that, that, that you know, the not seeing that r- relative rise uh, in, in hospitalization was so encouraging yeah. and and their freedom day if i'm not mistaken it was we're talking four weeks ago july 19th something like yeah. that and so we're approaching yeah. four weeks 16, 16 yeah. thank you yeah, and um the fact that they're not being overwhelmed is highly highly encouraging um it is and so Sorry, were you going to say something? Yeah, yeah I was going to say, it, yeah, I was going to say, and this, this brings us to the kids. Yeah, I was going to say, say we're, we're, we're jumping in the, at yeah. the same time. But uh, yeah. so Delta and kids, I got to tell you, Martha, it's been like when you look at mainstream media, it is, uh, I don't even know where to start. It's like hysterical. Yes, it's like we've, I feel like we're losing our minds a little bit. So I, I, without putting my judgment into this, with our current vaccination campaign, the fact that we don't have eleven-year-olds uh, and, and younger being vaccinated, what is your overall impression about the risk to kids, uh, specifically yeah. when we think of Delta variant and so forth? Yeah, and again, this is where I think it's really important to take that step back and just like, like not the Delta. Let's just take that step back. So COVID. Uh, one of the undersold, if you ask me, good news stories about COVID was the degree to which actually spared children. Mm. Not that kids can't get it, but if they do get it, the vast majority are either completely asymptomatic. In other words, it's so mild that kids have no symptoms or mildly symptomatic. They're a very small number that do get sick. And a lot of them have, uh, are, are kids who are already um fragile in terms of their health. They have what we call comorbidities. And, and these are children who are always vulnerable and, and that we always need to protect. But the reassuring news was that, and is, that COVID is, it doesn't cause severe disease in kids. Now, if you have a huge number of children who are susceptible, then there's still going to be that small number that gets sick. And then this brings us to Delta. And so it's, it, it, there is a lot of panic headlines at the moment, and it's it's really um, kind of annoying, actually. So 
<laughs> well, it is because there's no context. And so there's, for example, you know, hysterical, and I'm going to use the word hysterical because they're really, really very fear-mongering type headlines that, that pediatric hospitals are filling up. What does that mean? What are the numbers and what are they filling up with? Um, and so I, uh, I, I belong to something that's called a pediatric infectious disease listserv. And so the question went out on our listserv to all the pediatric infectious disease physicians uh, who are there, and it's a huge number of the U.S. physicians, what are you actually seeing? So in Florida, which is one of the, uh, the states that uh, does have a, a big delta wave right now, they are seeing more children being admitted, but the not absolute numbers are actually low. So it's not like, like they've got hundreds and hundreds of children suddenly being admitted, particularly when you consider the denominator. And so the, the increase in the admissions is very much a reflection of uncontrolled community transmission. So not that, that it is more dangerous to children, but when you have a lot of transmission in the community, kids by definition are more likely to get it. And one of the things that's very important when we look at kids is who are kids most likely to get the, the COVID from? And it's actually the adults around them. This is one of the interesting things about COVID that was different from some of the other respiratory viruses is that while children can transmit it, they're actually less likely to transmit it than an adult. And so a lot of the uh, transmission routes when we actually do contact tracing, it's adult to child. And so in a community where a lot of the adults aren't vaccinated, by definition, you're going to have more circulating virus and you're going to have more kids exposed. And so what we're seeing in the province, or I keep saying provinces, in the states uh, where, where there are a lot of um, pediatric admissions, it's a reflection of a very large denominator. And so the message is exactly the message we've been giving in Canada, which is we need to control community transmission and we need to ensure that we have as many adults as possible vaccinated because if the adults are vaccinated, the kids are protected. And this, then if we turn for the US where a lot of these alarming headlines are coming from and we go to the United Kingdom where they've also had a big Delta wave, but they have a much higher proportion of adults vaccinated what they did not see, they did see some increase in hospitalizations, but it wasn't the surge. It wasn't the, this, this catastrophic illness of children. It was exactly the same, actually, in terms of the, the proportion of children that get severe disease is the same. It's not more with Delta. So our job to protect our kids is actually what we're doing already, which is making sure all the adults around the kids are vaccinated because the adults don't have the virus or if they're shedding a very small amount of virus, the kids are essentially protected. And that's knowing that our children are already at exceedingly low risk of a bad outcome. But, you know, I guess, you know, nobody really wants a lot of COVID circulating these days. So there's so many yeah. gems, so key, many key points, and I'm going to try and summarize and, and do let me know where I, I messed up. Kid, most common transmission, adults to kids. The more yes. that our adults are vaccinated, the more protective it is to our children. And what we're Correct. seeing in the States, like for example, Florida, is the proportion, like the percentage of, uh, I guess, uh, would it be like uh, hospitalized, uh, the percent hospitalized? Yeah, so the, 
is similar yeah, to so the abs- yeah the absolute risk remains the same right it's just so it's yeah. a low risk it's low risk but, but it, the more people that are infected, but larger denominator you're going to have a larger denominator do you have a i don't want to yeah. put you on the spot do you have a sense of how large that denominator is okay just, all right no. so it because because the denominator all basis on how uh, based on on who gets tested and how accurate the testing is and so oh. so so the denominator and also of course how many people are asymptomatic versus mildly symptomatic? So it's a very complicated situation, uh, figuring out true denominators. No, fair enough. I guess my, I guess my question is is like that I've had trouble isolating is how many kids are yeah. actually getting sick relative to before. Like I'm not. That, I don't want to put you on the spot if this is a. You know what I mean? If that. Was- um, I don't think I've seen a good sense of that. There are some places that have looked at serology already, like the antibody levels, to try to figure out. Uh, how many children have, have actually had COVID already. And the reason it's hard is because so many children have zero symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so if you're asking, you know, the total number of kids, a, a child who has like no symptoms at all could, could have had the virus in his or her, her body and actually developed antibodies and never gotten sick. Right. And so it is a bit of a challenging situation with children because it is so mild in most of them, but the, the, what we're seeing coming out of the UK and the early data from the US, uh, when you actually sort of take that step back and try not to get sucked into the, um, you know, the sort of more fear-mongering type headlines, is that the actual numbers, the, 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 the absolute risk remains the same. And so what we call infection fatality rate, so, so the risk of a child dying of COVID is not higher anymore than it was before, uh, and it remains exceedingly low. Yeah, this is one thing that I, I saw. I forget where where I saw the reference, but even when you look at UK alpha variant or the UK variant versus uh, the Delta variant for kids, that's the, this percentage hospitalized was similar, uh, implying that Delta is not making our kids more sick or more at yeah. risk of dying. Um, but as you mentioned, it is more transfer transmittable. So the more that of the more of us that are protected in the community, the more we're protecting our kids. And, and that, that makes me think, you know, we've been seeing a lot of, I don't know if you saw that tweet by uh, potentially an esteemed colleague, but basically showing tons of concern that our youngins like the zero to 11 year olds are not being vaccinated going into a school year what is your general thoughts about the the risk for the youth youth i i really don't understand what the hate for schools that is that we have on so uh so this whole um schools being safe our kids being safe and i always say okay but safe from what so we know that they're actually not at risk of severe disease from covid so i mean we all want our children safe and so if you want to ask, what is the single safest thing for a child? Obviously, and, and, and for me, it's all aspects of, of what a child needs. It's their physical health. It's their social health. It's their mental health. It's integrating all of that together. And, and what is the single most important you know, sort of safety issue for our children? And so, so when we come to COVID, Despite all the the really quite negative media, particularly in Ontario, where we, we've had the longest school closures anywhere in Canada, we actually have not seen a lot of transmission in our schools. And, and there's lots of 
causation or sort of correlation versus causation graphs. People put it all up. People just don't believe the numbers. But even in Ontario, if we look at the numbers that we had of actual in-school transmission, it was less than 1%. That means that the vast majority of the children who were testing positive for COVID were actually getting in the community when the contact tracing was done. Now, some people are saying, oh, that's because we didn't catch enough or we weren't tracking enough. But similar studies have been done in other jurisdictions. And in fact, pretty much everywhere in the world, um, we can look at British Columbia, we can look at Sweden, we can look at Scotland, we can look importantly at the United Kingdom. And I'm kind of going to come back to the UK in a sec. And what we were not seeing was a lot of transmission schools. In other words, being in a school actually had a lower risk of getting COVID than being in the community. And it's probably because it's a controlled environment because you know the kids are sort of in defined cohorts because it's not like kids disappear off the face of the earth if they're not in school. They're off doing other stuff. They're off getting exposed in other ways. And so the fact that being in school had a lower risk of getting COVID, I think is kind of important. And then if we, we sort of think, okay, but maybe it's because kids were asymptomatic and it was all sneaky asymptomatic transmission. So then there have been some really good studies now to look at whether teachers were getting COVID because the, you know, the, the, the issue was with safety in schools is partly are kids safe? And I would say from COVID, the answer was absolutely yes. But then of course there are other people in schools like our adults, you know, that, that's a hugely important group of people, obviously. So were teachers more likely to get COVID? And there was a lot of fear about COVID, a lot of, of concern, obviously. But a year and a half into this, we have a lot more information. And so there is a study from Sweden. And, and Sweden's a good example because that's a country that actually chose to never have hard lockdowns and never had things like, and, and still don't have mandatory masking, never had mitigation measures, that, that kind of mitigation measure at school. And they actually looked at the risk of um, people in the population getting COVID by profession. And school, uh, school teachers uh, at all levels were at essentially exactly the same risk as a community. In other words, that by being a teacher in a school with a whole lot of children, none of whom were masked or doing physical distancing, teachers were not at higher risk. So that was Sweden. Exactly the same thing was found in Scotland. Uh, exactly the same thing was found in the United Kingdom. And then if you think, okay, but those are outside, what about Canada? Well, we're, we have a really good study from Vancouver where they looked at the, Vancouver, the, the school district in Vancouver and they actually did the blood work on the teachers, so serology, to see if they had any evidence of exposures to their antibodies. And whether it be elementary school or high school, teachers, by virtue of being in the classroom, were at no higher risk of having had COVID than anybody, than the average adult in the community. And this includes elementary school teachers. And the reason I say this is because British Columbia has never actually required masking of, of young children. And of course, they never shut down their schools uh, after uh, from September of last year. So their schools were open the entire year. And despite all of that, uh, teachers were at no higher risk. And then with Delta, so, so we come to the final you know, big question, is Delta going to change this? Well, obviously, it's kind of early in Canada because we're just at the beginning of Delta. But a study that just came out, or uh, uh, an observation has just come out actually in the um, British Medical Journal yesterday, so it's hot off the press, shows that um, when they looked at the, the rates of, um, of COVID in students in the United Kingdom who are in school open with Delta, 
I've got the numbers right here. So students in the month of May and June, their numbers were really low, uh, less than 1%. And in secondary schools, 0.27% uh, of staff tested positive in June, and that's with their Delta. So, so in other words, this is- staff or, Sorry. That was a staff was 0.27%. And students were um, about 0.42%. Yeah, less than one. It was 0.2%. An increase with Delta of 0.05%. So these are just, I mean, they're numbers. But the, the, the message, the overwhelming message is that schools have not actually been amplifiers. They reflect community rates. So if community rates go up, you're going to see parallel rates go up in schools. If community rates stay low, schools have been shown to be safe. So not that there's ever going to be zero risk and there's no zero risk scenario. And of course, with the exception of the British Medical Journal, uh, one which includes post-vaccination, all the previous studies were before mm. we had vaccines in the community. So the concern about the children, even though the children themselves are not at risk of COVID, of course, one of the concerns was also are the teachers at risk but also are they gonna bring it home to vulnerable family members? With adults vaccinated, any adult who chooses to be vaccinated it, it can, can, can be vaccinated. I mean, there's, there's, there are really no barriers anymore um, in terms of, of if, you're, if you're interested, you should be able to find a place and get vaccinated. Dramatically, like well over 90% reduction in severe disease and hospitalization or, or dying of COVID. So we have a situation which is very reassuring so that's sort of the safety side from COVID, <clears throat> excuse me. But the thing is, it's not just COVID, of course. And I'm going to come back to what I was saying earlier about what do we want for our children? What is the safest thing for our children? And of course, it's not just COVID. It's we have seen an explosion of what I'm going to call collateral damage. We have had doubling and tripling of, of children admitted with, with eating disorders. And this sets them up for lifelong health problems, of course. And that's the tip of the iceberg because these are the kids who have actually ended up being admitted to hospital. We've had uh, unbelievable increases in mental health and anxiety problems. We have had, at least at our hospital, an increase in severe suicide attempts. And that also means longer hospital stays. Uh, there are uh, on the other spectrum from the eating disorder, we have a, a, a big, like an increase in obesity. And this is, of course, because our kids aren't going to school. They're not playing games. They're not allowed to have physical activity. Sports were shut down. And obesity, not, is, obesity not, is not just a risk factor for severe COVID, but that also sets up for a lifelong, uh, a, a lifetime of health issues. And will almost certainly have a decreased life expectancy. And we all know this. I mean, it's not a secret. But there are other benefits for our children that, uh, of school. It's play. Play is a hugely important part of early childhood development. Play and interaction and learning how to get along with other children, as well as interacting with our adults. All of that is incredibly important for the long-term development of our children. It's time when they have friendships, where they develop relationships, where they learn to become adventurous and explore the environment. It is what allows our children to become fully functioning adults. So all of these other benefits of school, you cannot dismiss, not to mention, of course, the utter and critical importance of just education, because education is probably the single most important thing to predict success long, uh, for, for, for a lifetime success for, for the students. And so 
when we're balancing our conversations about safety for kids, it's I, I, we have to multitask. We have to think of all of these things. And we have to be reassured that COVID, fortunately, is not a very dangerous virus for children and really probably no more dangerous than a lot of other viruses we deal with all the time for kids. It was a very different story for adults, but because we're in this very fortunate position in Canada and Ontario, we've been able to vaccinate our adults, our adults really aren't at higher risk any, anymore. So this really means that we, we simply cannot ignore the collateral damage. I was just gonna give you an anecdote. Um, there were, I was looking after a 13 year old in the hospital, she's in for an unrelated uh, uh, reason. She was very withdrawn, very lethargic, just really not very interactive kid. And I asked the mother, you know, is she okay? Mother says, oh, she's just a pandemic kid. I thought that was one of the most tragic comments I've ever heard that you're writing off this child's complete withdrawal from interaction as a pandemic kid. That is not okay. It is absolutely not okay. And as you uh, alluded to, a lot of these things carry over to future yeah. years, potentially generational. And I, I got to tell you, I, I got, I'm a little emotional thinking about what you were saying about play. Cause I, I think of my, my children. So I, those that knew the show, I got three, three uh, kids and are, I got to tell you, so my recently turned three-year-old, when the first time he went to daycare um, and realized that he didn't have to distance from people and got to be, have a genuine interaction, you should have seen the shift. You should have seen the glow. And then yeah. our kids after the, you know, we, we dealt with obviously school closures from April on. And then when they start to go to camps and they, that apathy, and I, like whatever you want to label label as when we talk to our child psychologists, yeah. colleagues, it's like that's the number one thing that yeah. no motivation that apathetic tone yeah. that is not benign. And I yeah. got to tell you, Martha, one of the things that it just I don't know. I don't know if it's the background of being an intensivist or doing like cost benefit analysis. But when you choose an intervention. There's like yeah. when it's, if it's medicine, if you're an engineer, whatever it might be, you think of the collateral damage, you factor that into your equations, you, you, I know. you not only to uh, plan for it, but to help mitigate it to, to, to realize is that is, is the cost going to um, be worth it? Is it going to, is the, is it the benefit going to outweigh the cost? And the fact that we weren't having these conversations the fact that even it was taboo to have these conversations as early as the first wave was ridiculous. And I do I not like, I got to tell you, and this is why Martha is one of my heroes because there's only, a, there's, there's a handful of us that are, that will speak to this stuff. And like, there are, you, you'll see, there are hundreds of docs, thousands of docs that feel the same way that are like, man, we really have to have balance. And because of the nature of, I don't know how this developed. It, it became unsafe to speak. It became uns, yeah. unsafe. To, and so like she stepped up. She's one of many that stepped up because I, I'll tell you what it is. It's a sense of duty. It's a sense of looking at your kids and saying, am I doing, am I serving you well right now? By standing by the, on the sidelines saying, Hey, yeah, school closures, despite the myriad of evidence saying that it's safe, the, incredible vaccine rollout that I'm going to sit there and say like, Oh yeah, well, you know what? This is what it is. I'm going to see my apathetic kid and say, 
that is okay. Yeah. No. And, and one of the things that I hope uh, every time we do one of these things is to encourage the docs out there. Like, yes, it is scary to, 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 to rise up and, and articulate your concerns, but it's necessary. It is absolutely necessary for our general, like our, for our, our, our kids. And if you can't stick up for kids, I don't know who you can stick up for. Yeah, March of 2020, I think, fair enough, we didn't know what we were dealing with, but it was pretty rapidly obvious um, that that kids were not at risk. And this, to me, was, I, I keep saying, it's one of the unacknowledged good news stories of COVID. Like, I don't understand why we're not celebrating the fact that it essentially spared young people. I mean, this is unbelievably good news because the next pandemic could be a lot worse. I mean, influenza tends to be a lot more severe in young people. Uh, so... I mean, my approach has always been what I call total harm minimization. I mean, clearly COVID is here. I mean, nobody's going to deny COVID. It's very severe and it's particularly severe for vulnerable adults and for our seniors. And, and so, so our policies should have policies that protect our seniors, that protect vulnerable adults. We should be focusing in on not just uh, how to, um, the, well, I mean, I'm very pro-vaccine for, for our seniors, make no mistake, but also other lifestyle interventions. I know you've been on this a lot, but obesity is a, a thing. Now, I don't know if I'm bouncing right now, but I'm on one of these sort of, you know, balls oh, that you have to sort of balance oh, all the time. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm a stand-up desk, yo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm on, on, so so there's lots of things to do, but these are really important measures. And and so, so, so that's on the adult side, but total harm minimization for children was a very different conversation. So our policies and, and our strategies and what we needed to do in order to protect our kids was very different because they didn't need protection from COVID as much as they needed protection for the collateral damage. I don't think, I think anybody who works at pediatric hospital is going to say what we have seen in our hospitals has been collateral damage. Sure. Yes, of course, we've had some children admitted uh, with COVID, and, and, and these are particularly very vulnerable kids. But if you look at the numbers across Canada, they're not high uh, compared to a lot of other things we deal with all the time. And, and COVID as a risk to children is still a lot lower in terms of, of you know, mortality than suicides and overdoses, quite frankly, uh, or car accidents or cancers or any other uh, series of things. So, so, I mean, these are easily available numbers. Anybody can look them up to look at the actual risk of COVID versus all the other risks that we deal with all the time. And so, but it's a very complicated message to say, we have to balance what we do. So we protect our children. We do what's best for them. We do what's best for working adults and we do what's best for, for seniors. And that to me is, is what, public health and what we, our focus is, is total harm minimization. Acknowledging COVID is here, but, but if, if we end up causing more harm and we have more deaths and more, more long-term damage because of, of our measures, well, then we've done something very wrong. And, and I worry that we sort of lost that balance, that our focus on COVID has been so intense. And, and, and I'm sorry, but some of the headlines are, are wrong. Like the headlines shouldn't just be about COVID, but they should be about the collateral damage. They should be about what the cost of all this is. Mm -hmm. And not to deny COVID, but all this stuff on, on kids and all these headlines about Delta and kids, I think the headline should also be 
mental health and eating disorders and educational interruption and what we've done to the long-term social development, the social emotional development of young children, because these are equally and, and maybe even more important when, when we're talking about our kids. And so it's finding that balance that, that I'm advocating for. Absolutely. It's just, I just, I can't believe how, I don't know, the, the messaging has been just so all over the place. Like I still, to this day, I, I, I yeah. Just as an example, because you've gone to the exercise bit, like uh, someone on Twitter asked me if I've seen a, a young, healthy person in the intensive care unit from COVID. And I'm not saying it has never happened in the world. The, the question was asked, have I seen one? I, I'm, and I still haven't. I still haven't seen one. And like even when people in the, the headlines in the, during the uh, UK yeah. variants, um, 20 and 30 year olds, what they still weren't talking about was a lot of them were above 300 pounds like that that I seen personally and so like this has to be part of the narrative it has to be like what is your realistic risk what are the true like because to me it's almost like a um not deflection it's like a what's the word distraction distraction sorry about like like who really needs to worry about this and why you know like where the true risks are and um so i think we somehow we did the the public a disservice well it's it's what some of us have have said there's no context yeah um and 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 i also it's i i know some of my colleagues i've referred to it as medicine by anecdote so you'll have like one terrible story that suddenly hits all over the media and i'm going but that's not what's really going on on the ground. And, and, and if it's one out of a hundred million, because I, and I guess in the U S because some of the, 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 those worst case scenarios, these sort of tragic stories and, and it seems to overwhelm the narrative. And, and then what's the context, what were the risk factors? What was that person doing and what is the denominator? Yeah. Uh, and, and so the, the perception of risk that people have is, is just far higher than the actual risk. And, and I don't actually know how to fight that. I, and people are terrified. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I, I've been advocating for kids all along because that's, I, I think, where I decided this was the hill I was going to die on, so to speak, was advocating for our children. But there's also a huge mental health issue with adults. There are some very, very traumatized people out there that uh, there's going to be a long recovery. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I still yeah. judge me for this if you want, but I'm still seeing people walking on the street like, have like masked outside i'm saying outside masked and still doing yeah, the i'm scared to get delta from you and it's like you know like if we like think about I that know. level of anxiety that someone's walking with on a day-to-day basis that's not healthy i i could tell you no. no whatever they teach you in school whatever you want to google it is not healthy to be walking around with that level of anxiety all the time thinking that you're no. putting your life at risk at taking a walk outside we're not serving our public. Yeah, no, well. no. And, and this does bring us to the kids, to the kids again, because outdoor activities are safe. Yeah. And, and I mean, we really haven't shown and there have been some really good studies trying to see if there have been transmission uh, with outdoor activities. And again, it's balancing that, that I, I, I sound, I mean, there is hard to believe, but there is more to health than COVID. Um, and I say that because of our, our just really, you know, obsessive uh, reporting and, and, and appropriate at the beginning attention to COVID. But our, our kids and our youth, if we're worried about their safety and if we're advocating for the best for our children, 
what is best for our children is school, it's education, it's social interaction, it's all those extra extracurricular activities that allow them to develop into, into like a, a fully functioning uh, adult. And, and it's balancing all of those. So I've, I've struggled when people are, are so concerned about COVID that they're not actually seeing what's really happening to our youth uh, and, and the harms. Clearly, there are some children who are more vulnerable. And I mean, this has always been true, that we have had very vulnerable children every respiratory season. We had very vulnerable children during the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And it's in no way to to in any way deny the fact that there are some vulnerable children, but we're, we're creating a generation of, of really damaged kids by, by not actually allowing them to have a, a normal childhood. It's something I've said before, which is kids need to be kids. There's so many levels to that too. Like not only their psychological, their overall development, physical development, we've impaired, but like think about this debt that they're going to have to take on. Like our kids, yeah. Like the the ability for them to afford a a home in uh, years to come, like it's just it's insane how yeah. we've we've just really hit and, hard that generation. And of course, I mean the worst damage, of course, are the kids who are already vulnerable. Mm. These are you know the kids who are already marginalized, who might have already been struggling. That's where the most harm probably of all. And then there's another group of kids that I've hardly see mentioned anywhere, which are what I think of as the lost kids. Oh, yes. The estimates for Ontario uh, are that we have about 100,000 children totally. who are just gone from the school system. These are kids who are so disenfranchised, and it's not because they quit school, but these are kids who have difficulty with online access. Maybe they're in an apartment and they're trying to share their device with four or five uh, other siblings. These are the kids that maybe what was keeping them in school was their sports or their music or their drama, their peers, their friends. And quite frankly, nobody likes sitting in front of a screen all day long. This idea that somehow online learning replaces in-person learning and, and hu human to human interactions. Sure, for a month or two, maybe, but not for two years. These that's a hundred thousand children. I mean, we don't even have a good sense of the numbers because we're not tracking, and that's just in Ontario. I'm not even talking about all of Canada. In Ontario, that's what we're thinking we're dealing with. How do we even find and reintegrate those kids? Those kids aren't at, threat, at risk from COVID, but their entire future is now destroyed if we can't get them back into an education system to something that will allow them to become fully functioning adults. That is huge. 100,000 kids. And th th these you simply can't ignore this. It is massive. And like, listen, that's legit, too. Like we, you know, with our Bridges Over Barrier charity, like it was yeah. launched because of this because of the kids that were being essentially lost and that were barely that were barely making ends meet. Um, and uh, the needs were massive. Like we, I remember I just an anecdote where a family is choosing between diapers and, and feeding their kids. Like it really was like that level of, of hardship and trying them trying to find an like to follow through with online learning. Like yeah, that's a pipe dream. And so like our social workers have clearly stated that we have lost children. We don't know what, where they are. We don't know, you know, and, and like, so this is a real narrative and, and I'll tell you straight up, a lot of them are racialized. They're, they're, they're yes. already like got the ch chip stacked against them. If that's an expression, I mix metaphors all the time. Um, but it, 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 and once again, it's just one of those motivators to, to say like, you know what, we need yeah. to do the right thing. We need to step up for those that can't step up for themselves. 
I don't know if you're going to touch this because one of the things that's also all over the place right now is this thing called long COVID. Yeah, yeah. That, so I don't know if you had, I'm yeah. telling you, Martha, you're like reading my flasm. Like there was, there's a couple of things. There's the long COVID. I wanted to talk on RSV and masks in general with our oh, kids, but okay. like, yeah. So yeah. like the, the long COVID so, one is a good one. It's yeah. a good one. Yeah. So I'm going to call this a post-infectious syndrome. And the reason I'm calling it a post-infectious syndrome is because we deal with these all the time. Um, so pedi- anybody who does pediatric infectious diseases or general pediatrician will have seen a child who gets something after their acute infection or an adult, actually, it's not just uh, kids. And, and there are some that are very well recognized, like Guillain-Barre syndrome. There's something called ADAM. There are things that we recognize as hap- happening after infection. And another common one actually after bacterial infections is actually streptococcal, like rheumatic heart disease. So we know that post-infectious syndromes happen. So... COVID being a virus, I don't think it's a surprise that we're going to see post-infectious syndromes. The question is, what does this mean and how frequent is it? And again, it's this sort of mass of, of just anecdotes and, and really, I'm sorry to say this, but unvalidated information. And in order to, to, to figure out, okay, how many people truly have this, you need control groups. You actually need to say who's had COVID, who hasn't had COVID? And are the people who've had COVID more likely to have a post, like, like to have a problem? And uh, not just base it on every kid or every adult who feels bad, because you know what? A lot of us feel kind of lousy. Well, I, I'm, I'm starting feeling kind of optimistic, but so maybe. But, but there's still like we're talking about like very, very frightened people, people who've had not been allowed to have social access, who've not been exercising, who've not been allowed to do a, a lot of their normal things. And it's not just exercise, but for people whose main community was their church group or their choir group or their bird watching group. These are these are our, our interactions that we've cut off for a lot of people. And that causes harm. And so how do you tease out? real post-infectious with this whole lot of other stuff. And so for kids, because that's what really what we're talking about, there have actually been studies done. And uh, there was one that had a smaller group, which is a, uh, they looked at 1,355 kids. And this is blood work. And this is important because serology tells us that the person actually had the infection. So you're not guessing. You're not trying to decide, you know, some people think they had it, but you know, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. And uh, they found that, yes, there was maybe around... Um, of the kids had uh, true sort of post-infectious syndrome. But the good news is that uh, by 12 weeks, they were essentially all better. So not to minimize the fact that some kids had had post-infectious syndromes. Uh, The interesting thing was that 2% of the kids who never had COVID also felt bad. So that's the comparison, right? But even more important is the study from the United Kingdom. And and again, the UK is good because they're kind of ahead of us in terms of, of their waves. And they actually did a, a huge one where they looked at data from, and I'm going to read you the number, 258,790 kids uh, age 5 to 17. And then they looked at prolonged post-infectious symptoms. And they found, um, and it's probably, an, uh, they only were able to look at the kids, who had, they looked at kids who had symptomatic COVID, so, so that were symptomatic. So a child who had no symptoms, um, wasn't there and compared them to to the kids who didn't. And 1.8% of the kids with COVID had post-infectious syndromes compared to 0.9%. So in other words, just under 1% actually has something that could be attributable to COVID is important. So it's not to minimize long COVID because there are children who get post-infectious syndromes, but the reassuring thing is the numbers are low. 
the reassuring thing is that they were self-limited. And the reassuring thing was that uh, they were for the most part really mild. And so again, it's how do you balance this situation? Because there's always going to be the one or two uh, situations where you have somebody who has a really severe post-infectious syndrome. We see some really bad post-infectious things after influenza, for example. So, so they happen, but what we can't do is again, have one really bad story and then attribute it to everybody. And it's very difficult right now because there's so much uh, emotional overlay. Uh, and I, I just said this in another uh, conversation, I got accused of gaslighting everybody who had long COVID. And I was thinking, no, 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 no. I do believe there are post-infectious syndromes, but I also believe we have to be very clear what we're dealing with and that we don't just have every person who feels depressed and lethargic and short of breath because of a lot of social circumstances that labeled because labels are important. So we have to know who really has it. And fortunately, if we look at the studies that have good control groups, the risk of long COVID is low. Really reassuring. Absolutely reassuring. For me as a, as a dad, like the fact that yeah. they seem to be mild and self and like not forever. Yeah. You know, they a relatively short period of time that the symptoms resolve. And, and, the, and the, the UK is important because they've had the, the huge Delta. So they have a very large denominator and database that they can look at. And so that's why I think Delta and kids in the UK are probably not that different than Delta and kids in Canada. So I find that really reassuring. Love it. Love it. What is what were your thoughts when you, you there were the headlines of the what was going on with RSV uh, in New Zealand? So the thought was just for those that didn't see it, they, they were seeing a surge in RSV, a common virus that's seen in our our kids. Um, all, almost all kids will be exposed to it. Uh, it does cause hospitalizations, but they saw a surge in numbers. I don't know if you you if yeah. any thoughts came to mind when when you saw that. So yeah, so RSV is. Uh stands for respiratory syncytial virus in language. Uh, the, it's one of the common circulating viruses. We see it every year, but it's usually considered a winter virus. So it's normally one of the ones that, that's a, one of our many seasonal viruses. And we usually see a surge at some point in the winter. It's most dangerous to very young kids. Uh, and we do uh, every year have kids admitted to hospital, including the intensive care unit uh, because of, of what's called bronchiolitis and, and uh, RSV is, is a common cause of this in young children. So it is actually potentially a severe disease for a small subset of kids, but kind of like a lot of viruses for the vast majority, it's not that dangerous. What's interesting is that we've seen, um, I'm gonna say our viruses are kind of out of sync uh, and so the normal seasonality seems to be all over the place. And so the New Zealand saw a spike. And uh, was this because of, you know, maybe they had been protected and now suddenly it, it was out there? Or was it actually that we're paying a huge amount of attention to viruses and kids um, and testing a lot more? Because of course, in the past, you wouldn't necessarily test every every child with a runny nose, um, and so are we are we getting like a false denominator? But the U.S. has seen this as well. They are in fact seeing increases of RSV admissions, and this is in the summertime. So it is an odd time, and, and I'm not going to I, I can't actually speculate on all the reasons, but it is a bit of a concern. It's a bit of a concern that we might see what um, we might also think of as a double cohort of kids with RSV because a lot of the kids who didn't get it last year might get it this year. And fortunately, again, it's a, one of the, the many viruses that most kids get to get. And, and it's not 
wrong for a child to get a virus. I mean, childhood illnesses are are childhood illnesses. They're not by and large dangerous, and they are part of our building, you know, a robust and sustainable immunity to protect ourselves from all the things in the environment. Because of course, we're not in a sterile world. But RSV is contributing to some of the hospital admissions um, in in the U.S. And it's very difficult sometimes to tease out. Um, the reason why somebody's hospitalized, because both in Canada and, and the United States, anybody who's admitted to hospital who tests positive for COVID is counted as a COVID admission, even if the reason for it maybe was appendicitis or something else. And because we're screening everybody going into hospitals, we, we are finding a lot of asymptomatic people. Where So the reason for admission is even in COVID. And so it becomes a little tricky because you might have a, a pediatric hospital that's overwhelmed, but the actual number of COVID cases is, is low. It might actually be that they're overwhelmed because of uh, collateral damage, because of this diagnosis, because of trauma, I don't know, right? But I, I just, and again, this is where context is so important. So that if you, hear, if you see a headline that says, pediatric hospitals are overwhelmed, okay, but how many, is it because of COVID? Is it because of RSV? Is it because of delayed care? And so these are, are shades of gray, if you want to think of that, that I think are really important. Again, not to say that we can ignore COVID because clearly we can't, but, but this whole mix of, of viruses is going to be, and it's going to be very challenging actually as we move into the fall because we are going to start to see uh, some of the other normal viruses. Uh, we have on any given year, we always see influenza. We always see RSV. Uh, I'm going to come back to influenza in a sec. Uh, we usually have four circulating coronaviruses. So part of our normal seasonal respiratory viruses include four coronaviruses, uh, human coronaviruses. And I think along with some of my colleagues that COVID will become the fifth circulating coronaviruses when it, when it moves into sort of this endemic phase. But we're going to have, uh, it's going to be challenging because most runny noses, I bet, aren't going to be from COVID going forward. And so it's going to be a little bit of a shift, I think, in, in mindset and how we deal with this. Because as we all know, um, kids get colds pretty much all the time, particularly their first year in kindergarten or in grade one. And so balancing um, you know, the health of our kids and allowing them in school is going to have to be, I think, at some point, that step back and saying, well, you know, these kids have mild disease. They can be at school. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an evolving story. And I mean, clearly we're learning as we go along. I, I think, the, uh, you know, clearly I think we're all advocating for our kids to be in school is by far and away the most important thing for our children. So if our focus is the health and well-being of our kids, they go to school at full stop. Uh, but how we deal with, with COVID and, and uh, how we deal with COVID is going to be a lot of our mindset. Um, and this is where this decoupling is so important. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree with that. Um, we're, we're, it's going to be a mindset shift. Yeah, we're on. Uh, we're just at the hour, so we we gotta we gotta unfortunately sign off in two minutes or less, if that's okay, Martha. What has motivated you to be a voice? What has given you the courage to to speak up against some of the um, lack of balance that you are seeing? I couldn't, it was pretty clear pretty early on that what we were seeing in our hospital was collateral damage. Um, and so that to me is, wait, wait, we're doing more harm to our children than COVID is doing. Um, and so I'm thinking, thinking okay, we're in a situation where 
kids and adolescents are at low risk. We um, have, we have to put their health and well-being number one. And I guess, I mean, mm-hmm. I think somebody has to speak for our kids. They, they, they were not being advocated for in a way that they needed. And, and it's also been interesting and, and somewhat disturbing to me that, for example, in Ontario, we have this really, really strong, and I don't even know how to fight uh, rhetoric that schools were intrinsically unsafe. And yet mm. most of the rest of Canada kept schools open with even fewer mitigation measures than we had, and, and the sky didn't fall. I mean, British Columbia kept its schools open. They didn't even have mask mandates in the classrooms until February, and February was really only from, I think, grade eight up, and then in April from grade four up. They never masked JK, kindergarten, or elementary school, and somehow those kids were able to stay in school. They didn't have a crisis of COVID in their kids. They didn't have a crisis of COVID in teachers. And and I guess if you look, for me, it was looking around at everything going on. But the sum of, I mean, I you know, I can't give details, but some of the collateral damage, and some of these kids are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It was simply impossible to ignore. I, I mean, we have to do right. Kids are our future. We have to do what's best for their complete total health and well-being. It's their physical, it's their social, it's their mental. And they need their own policies. We need to advocate for our kids despite COVID. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, I couldn't stand by and watch what was happening to children and not speak out. So, I mean, I'm so proud. I'm so proud of all that you've done. I, um, oh my God, I apologize that I didn't touch on this one. Do you, is, it, is it possible to do whether you think kids need masks in a short period of time, or do you think it's a too big of one? We can skip it if you want. Well, I mean, masks are an interesting, you know, and it's like a lot of things, very emotional topic. I think there's a role in, in sort of, uh, you know, certain crowded, really closed conditions. But again, masks in schools is, is, a, is a tough topic because people are very emotional about it. And, and I guess, you know, again, I keep thinking, well, can we look at places that had masks that didn't have masks? And also, can we look at what we're trying to achieve? And by that, I mean, COVID is not going away. Our kids aren't at risk if they get COVID. Our adults are protected. So, you know, if you sort of balance off the pros and cons, I actually liked the document that uh, the Hospital for Sick Children and uh, the Ontario Science Table, um, which also endorsed it, put out because they had a a sort of a a green, yellow, red system or scale up or scale down. Because acknowledging actually that there are plenty of times where we don't have to have masks uh, on our kids or in schools. Uh, And this is based not just on case count. This very important thing about that document. It was on severity and hospital capacity. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a much more fluid system. So it's not absolute. It's not yes masks, no masks. It's actually there are a lot of times where it will be okay for nobody to be wearing masks, but but we we monitor and we we keep an eye on things. And so there's no sort of fixed rule. And and I like the scale up, scale down, red, yellow, green system because right now, for example, we would be in green and we would be in a situation where it'd be absolutely fine for the kids to have no masks out and about. And there may be times where in certain communities in particular, you might just start to see increases. And that was the other thing about it. It was very regional. So it meant that if you were in a a community with 
with, yeah, like where, where there's really no transmission, well, then they're in green and they don't have to have the masks. And so it's a flexible, um, adaptable system. I kind of wish we had actually done that in Ontario because it, it allows, um, well, it's quite frankly, uh, you know, a much more sustainable system. You know, and whether masks work in young kids, I mean, nobody's actually studied it. It's quite fascinating. There are, there are actually no randomized controlled trials of <clears throat> masks in young children. And I don't think I'm alone in noticing that most young kids sort of chew their masks and they get moist and they get damp with their cloths and they get dumped on the ground, they pick them up. And so, I mean, it's it's a very emotional topic though. And it's one that I try not to get too, too uh <clears throat> into because people get very passionate about masks but if i had to advocate for anything it actually would have been the extremely well thought out document that sick kids put out because it had a really nice algorithm for for, for a regional scale up scale down algorithm which i thought was pretty pragmatic actually i love it i love it I, i and i completely agree listen martha you are a gem you are once again one of my heroes one of the people i look up to one of the the people that have given me personally the fuel to to continue to advocate for our kids so i honestly thank you so much for agreeing to do this those that are are, are, absolutely those that are catching this now if you press nl in the, the chat box you'll get a uh a version of this audio uh email to you um, we'll, we'll have the podcast out as soon as it's ready because this is too poor, too important of a uh, of an issue. Thank you, and continue to do what you're doing, and I'll be there Thank right you. behind you. And so, I completely agree with everything you're saying, by the way, about wellness. I've been following that and making sure I do it as well. So, oh, yeah. thank you, thank you so much. It means a lot. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Fulford. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter at Qualcast. Leave any comments or messages at Qualcast99 at gmail.com. Leave us that five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps with the visibility of the show. Better yet, tell a friend. Send them this episode. Help spread the word because, as you know, we're trying to change that boogie. Go to selvingwellness.com if you're a healthcare provider. This is our aim to reduce burnout within our communities. First month is free. You guys are going to love it. And guys, stay healthy. Thanks for listening. Connect again real soon. Peace.